Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 22nd, 2019, and this is show number 763. Well, Tesla's got bells on and a Santa suit for our live show, and uh, Steve and I are bedecked in our, our Santa hats as well. So we've got it going. I got on a Hawaiian shirt with Santa's. Steve's got his red Santa shirt on. We got it going on here. So I can't promise you won't tell, hear those bells again if uh, Tesla comes flying through. Anyway, thanks to many, many awesome listeners, we will have full shows for every one of the holiday weekends. Because of these awesome listeners, I've been able to do my Christmas shopping, wrap presents, go to a holiday party, see Kyle for his birthday, and finish a video tutorial for Screencast Online. In a weak moment, I agreed to, have a, to a delivery date of December 23rd. I don't know why I decided to do that, but I did. Anyway, I cannot thank all of the contributors enough for making my holidays more enjoyable and helping me to not disappoint the listeners. All of the reviews are fantastic. Even Frank's. Anyway, I can't remember what I told you we'd play this week, and I'm, I don't know, I'm too lazy to go back and look, and I think I've moved some things around. So here's what we've got on deck. First, Joe McKinley bought my 2013 15-inch MacBook Pro, and as a longtime Windows user, she's going to tell us about her early experiences. Then we'll take a holiday interlude while Steve continues with his annual tradition of reading his rendition of Twas the Night Before Christmas with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Next up, we have an excellent review of the software QLab by Andy Dolph. Now, you haven't heard Andy Dolph's uh, voice since 2012 on the NoSilicast, since, uh, let's see, that was episode number 385, when he explained to us the difference between different audio compression methods. He explained why it's a really dumb idea to compress an already compressed file. Anyway, I think you'll really enjoy his storytelling about QLab using a two-foot steam gauge engine in A Christmas Story as his example. I just told you that part so Bart and Brett's ears will perk up to listen. Then we have the second half of security bits that Bart and I recorded last week, but a huge story broke this week, so Bart and I did a quick impromptu recording uh, about it, which I will play before the regular security bits. But first, let's get started with Jill McKinley. Hi, this is Jill with my reflections on the new-to-me MacBook Pro. I've been a Microsoft gal since the time I built my 8088 with MS-DOS version 1 in the early 80s. When I went to college, I bought an Apple IIc. It was an extraordinary amount of money given to me by my grandmother, who wanted to see college as a success for me. I thought a computer would be a huge advantage. I also bought an Apple thermal printer, which was also very expensive when it came to ink and paper. But I have to admit, the experience with Apple really turned me off to the company. At the store that sold the devices, they refused to talk to me, and they would only talk in answer to my dad. I thought the company was made up of annoying busybodies who tried to get me to cut up disks and otherwise micromanage the use of my computers through written letter. Plus, there was not a lot of software available for the device. My friend and I started a typing paper business in college and charged for pages, disks, and reprinted pages. I had to explain to everyone what a disk was and why they would want one. It was a huge technology change for the college typing industry. Before this technology, any changes to a college paper required retyping the whole thing on a typewriter. But I could edit things and only reprint the affected pages. It was so much faster. I was known in the dorm as the girl who owned a computer. I went to a very large college with a very large dorm, 
And so it was really surprising how few computers were even in the entire building. The two other computers were Tandy's. Over the years, I bought iPhones, iPads, AirPods, and have really loved the small consumer electronics that Apple makes now. There's a lot of software available. Apple devices seem to produce great technology with an eye towards privacy and security. Last month, I decided I needed a laptop. It's so aligned with the newest release of the 16-inch MacBook. So I bought Allison's backup, backup MacBook. First, if you've ever had the joy of unboxing a new thing, you know it can be quite fun and exciting. But when you buy a used device, that joy is never there. But Allison had it well in hand. She had every bit of plastic, every piece of paper, and every sticker that came with the box originally. She knew exactly how to wrap it up as if it were brand new. I don't even think I could do that with the deck of cards that I bought last week, and I'm pretty sure the new AirPod Pros wouldn't even fit in the box it came in. But she knew how to do it, and it was a really great experience. Thank you, Allison, for that. So now I'll tell you about my experience so far from the viewpoint of someone with an ever so slight Windows bias. My first impression is the machine was solid and well-built. It's also a tad slippery. I will pay attention to my grip. The basic operations were intuitive and smooth. I've never even been on a Mac before, and I knew pretty much how to use it. I'm still a bit fuzzy on the core functionality of the operating system and troubleshooting. I don't really even know where my files are. I don't even know if it matters. I'm not even sure if I should care. I did install many applications that I use with Windows and really enjoyed using most of them on the MacBook. They run great, and in most cases, they actually run better than my one-year-old Windows desktop. The interfaces are more intuitive, the software runs more smoothly. And to give you an example, 1Password, which is good in Windows, is fantastic in Mac. And so I really enjoyed using it there much more than I do on my own computer. I found other software that I wanted to try, and I'm quite pleased with the availability. I was surprised at the number of productivity software, which is one of my favorite categories. I was able to easily map my storage drives. The one part I think that it struggled, which is not terribly surprising, is gaming. My Windows desktop games like a beast. This one kind of chugged just to load some of the games I like to play. The screen is beautiful. When I was at a customer trip, I used it as to watch videos, and the picture was sharp. When I returned to working on the device, I realized, you know, my eyes are not that great, but I could see perfectly on it. I remember reading reviews about this laptop when it first came out, about the retina screen and how beautiful it was, and it absolutely is gorgeous. But I also remember thinking, I don't think that this laptop is for me. It doesn't have a CD or a DVD player or a network card, and I don't know where I'd even have any ports to plug anything in. But now it makes me think that Apple is really too far in the future, almost maybe for their own good, because now it's 2019. And you don't need a DVD or CD or a network cable. I don't even use that many plugins for devices. As a technology control freak, I really thought having a MacBook would remove me from the technology aspect of the laptop, but it really didn't. It just made it easy to love using it. I've really enjoyed the community of Mac users and the statements they make about problems with the system. For example, if you search, are MacBooks too slippery?, You'll find a hundred responses. No, it's not too slippery, but here's how I made it less slippery. It's pretty funny. 
And when I think about the MacBook and how expensive it is, I realize that when you have a six-year-old MacBook that can compete with a one-year-old desktop, maybe the investment is worth it in terms of longevity. For me, this is a real introduction to the MacBook realm. It's given me a few years with this machine and my Windows desktop. And in a few years, I'll need a new machine. And we'll see what that will be. I'm as intrigued as you are to see what that is. I just love that my MacBook Pro went to someone who loves her. You know, I think that's really cool. And she clearly appreciates it. And uh, it is fun and interesting to see and listen to her experiences as she goes through it. You know, so many of us haven't been new Mac users in a very long time. It's, it's really neat to see somebody doing the discovery. Sadly, uh, she knows a lot and is too smart and hasn't let me help her do hardly anything. I was really hoping I'd get to hold her hand a lot, but unfortunately, she's uh, she's self-service. So anyway, maybe she'll get stuck soon. Perhaps she'll finally uh, update to Catalina and ruin her life, and then she'll, she'll need us all, at least for a support group. It's nearly Christmas, so it's time for Steve to resurrect the poem that has become a holiday favorite on the NoSillaCast. This year, we lost our beloved Honda Bob, a longtime Nocilla castaway and contributor to the show and a very dear friend. But his memory and the absolute silliness he inspired in the Nocilla castaways will live on. So grab a hot beverage and some cookies, sit back, relax, and enjoy Steve's slightly modified version of The Night Before Christmas. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a trackpad. Okay, work with me here. The earbuds were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that all things I maker soon would be there. The Nocilla castaways were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of iPads danced in their heads. And Potfeet in her kerchief and I in my cravat had just settled down for a long winter Skype chat. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the keyboard to see what was the matter. Away to the windows! I flew like a flash drive, tore open the shutters, and nearly did a nosedive. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of brushed aluminum to objects below. When what to my eyes seemed very bizarre, but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny cars. With a little old driver with whom helves hobnob, I knew in a moment it must be Honda Bob. More rapid than 4G his vehicles they came, and he tweeted and shouted and called them by name. Now Accord, now Civic, now Fit and CRV, on Element, on Ridgeline, on Pilot and Odyssey, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now drive away, drive away, drive away all. As dry leaves that before the reality distortion field endowed, when they meet with an obstacle mount to the cloud, so up to the housetop the vehicles they flew, with the sleigh full of Apple products, and Honda Bob too. And then in a twinkling, I heard with a squeal the skidding and sliding of each little wheel. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney Bob came with a bound. He was dressed in coveralls from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with oil and soot. A bundle of SSDs he had flung in his Scotty vest, and he looked like a geek who was extremely obsessed. A wink of his eye and a look not too pious soon gave me to know he had an apple bias. He spoke not a word, but texted his concern, and he filled all the stockings and then hit return. And laying a finger aside his levitation app, 
a command to his iPad, up the chimney, ASAP. He sprang to his sleigh, and the autos did they bristle, and away they all flew as if shot from a missile. But I heard him exclaim as the poem prescribed, Happy Christmas to all, and please stay subscribed. Well, thank you for that, Steve. I don't think that's ever going to get old. I think we should play it every year, even when nobody listening can even remember who Honda Bob is. But we'll always have fun. Well, next up, we've got Andy Dolph with his review of QLab. Hi, this is Andy, and I'm here with a little bit different kind of a story for the Nasillacast. My background is in sound, lighting, and projection design for the theater. I've been thinking for a while about telling you all about an application I use a lot. It's called QLab, the letter Q-L-A-B, and it's at QLab.app if you'd like to learn more. It's produced by a small company in Baltimore called Figure 53, and it's kind of specific to the entertainment industry, theater, and other kinds of performances. So here's the problem to be solved. The way we use media in performance, whether that's audio or video or both, tends to be different from the way we use it in our daily lives. You know, when I'm at home, I put on a podcast or I put on a playlist or whatever, and I let it play. And I don't really care the exact moment it starts or the exact moment it ends. But in a live performance environment, you can imagine, we need it to be very precise. Imagine a dance recital. The music needs to start when the dancers are in position, not before and not after. And then it needs to stop while the audience applauds at the right time. And the next thing can't start until the next group of dancers is ready. What QLab does is let us create a series of cues, a series of things that we want to have happen. And we can choose what the timing relationship between those things is. So the standard default behavior is that it does one cue when you press the go button, typically the space bar on the Mac, and then it stops ready to start the next cue the moment you press the space bar. And you go through the whole show that way. Now, if you have multiple cues that are always going to operate together at the same time, let's say you have a piece of audio and a separate piece of video that always need to start together, then QLab lets you connect them so that you press the spacebar once and they both happen. This makes it really easy to operate shows that can get very complex. Here's a great simple example where QLab really shines. And one of my favorite things about it is the feature set of the free version of QLab, which you can go and download right now at QLab.app, was all we needed to do this show. I volunteer as a conductor on the Maine Narrow Gauge Railroad, which is in Portland, Maine, and it's two-foot gauge steam trains. Our biggest fundraiser of the year at the railroad is the Polar Express. There's music and announcements, a professional performance reading the book. All happens, it's kind of like a little play that happens on the train as we steam out to the North Pole. I like to tell the kids that in the summer, our tracks go to the Back Cove Bridge, 
But somehow in November and December, our tracks go to the North Pole. We've never quite figured out how that works. I'll include a couple of pictures of the train that Allison can put in the show notes. There is a number of different pieces of music that need to happen on time. At the start of the show, everybody's on board the train at the station. We play an introduction. The introduction then goes into the hot cocoa music. And our hot cocoa chef elves come on the train and everybody gets their hot cocoa and cookies. And then as the train leaves, we play some music and then the story and then some more music. And then when that sequence ends, we start playing Christmas music. And the Christmas music needs to continue until a specific point where Santa gets off the train and we're ready to go back to the station. And then we play a last song from the film score. So the problem to be solved is making sure that the right things happen at the right time. But if there's an unexpected delay, they don't happen too early. Because, of course, the speed the train runs is about the same every night, but it varies a little from trip to trip and engineer to engineer. And for instance, if there was an obstruction on the track or we had a mechanical issue, we might have to hold for a number of minutes. And we want the soundtrack to stay with us that whole time. In the past, the sound had been run off an iPod Nano, and it required somebody with a fair amount of skill in order to make that work, and it often wasn't all that elegant. It was okay, but we could do better. And so this year, I programmed it in QLab. When the train pulls into the station for the first trip, the sound operator presses the space bar, and it starts playing the pre-show music. And that's a series of tracks. And the thing is, that series of tracks will repeat forever, if needed. So we could start it today, come back tomorrow morning, and it would still be repeating that same series of six tracks. So we're in that loop for as long as we need to be. Then when we're ready to start the show, they push the space bar one more time. It plays the safety announcement and then starts the Polar Express music and then goes directly into the hot chocolate music. That hot chocolate track is 27 minutes long. It should never take 27 minutes to serve hot chocolate, even to a train of close to 300 people. So the idea is I've given us way more music than we could ever need under any reasonable circumstances. Then as the train leaves, the operator presses the space bar again, and it starts the sequence with the music and the story. And then when the story ends, it automatically goes into the Christmas music sequence which again repeats like that first sequence I talked about, the pre-show. So however long it takes us to get back, the Christmas music will just continue. And then when we drop Santa off and we're ready to go back into the station for that last little part of the trip, he presses the space bar, the Christmas music fades out, and the Believe song starts. When we get back into the station, he presses the space bar one last time. The music fades down, but it's still in the background, and it plays a pre-recorded announcement asking people to watch their step as they get off the train. And then the music comes back up, it finishes the Believe song, and automatically goes back to start again, the pre-show for the next trip, all through QLab. And this, as I say, is a fairly simple 
application of it using just the free feature set. It can get fairly expensive if you want to use the advanced audio, video, and lighting features. It's about $1,000 to buy the complete program. But if you're doing a sort of one-off event, it's also available as a rental. $10 a day gives you the full feature set. Or if you only need one discipline, audio, video, or lighting, you can just rent the one you need for $4 a day. I would encourage you, if you're doing a school talent show or a church event or a dance recital, to think about bringing your Mac along and give QLab a try. Back to you, Allison. Well, I got to tell you, Andy, the uh, live show was uh, lighting up. Kaylee was extremely excited about this. I believe she said, I need this, followed by, how come I never knew about this? So she's pretty excited about that. I am also guessing that Shyamani is going to be excited about it. And everybody who works for the schools or their churches or, uh, you know, a, a lot of that stuff was really, really interesting to me. Even the uh, business model where you can rent it, rent the full capability for days at a time. That's a terrific business model looks like they've got a lot of different ways to make it work for people. Very, very cool. I talk a lot about using the Amazon affiliate links, and I'm not sure everyone understands that it's not just tech stuff that helps the show that you buy in the Amazon uh, in Amazon. If you click on a link, say, to an SSD and a blog post, but you continue shopping, everything in that session counts towards helping the show. Now, keep in mind, I absolutely cannot see who buys what, but I can see what was purchased. For example, in Canada, we've got some Lee's jeans, an Instapot, and a smart meat thermometer. In Germany, we've got some single malt scotch whiskey and Office 365. I guess they needed the whiskey because of the Office 365. The UK went in for a subscription to the Telegraph, some batteries for the holiday toys, and a camping stove and some tech with a solar power bank and a Logitech crayon. Back in the U.S., someone's staying safe with flashing light shoe clips and reading an Arctic guide to wildlife in the far north. Not sure if those two are related. Now, while Canada favored Lee's jeans, in the U.S., someone bought Levi's. And someone is fixing to make some recordings for the No Silicast, obviously, because they bought an ATR2100 USB mic. There's a lot more, but I got tired of pulling all those links to add to the show notes. Yes, all those links are in the show notes. So if you need any of those things, go buy them through the links in the show notes. Anyway, see what I mean? Every little bit sends a small percentage to help the show. Thank you to everyone who remembers to click those tech links and then keep shopping in Amazon. So you're about to hear security bits in a few minutes, but uh, the first thing you're going to hear Bart say is, well, we recorded this a week ago, and as long as nothing big happened, hey, Bart. <laughs> Hello, something big happened. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I've caught Bart with uh, very little chance to prepare, but I tried to understand this big Zynga breach, and um, I think I got most of it wrong or maybe a tenth of it right uh, when I tried to do it myself. So I asked Bart if he'd just jump on and do an off-the-cuff, which, you know, he loves to do unprepared material, right? That You love that? Oh, yeah, totally my favorite thing to go on the record about something I haven't had time to prep for. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so, well, maybe we should preface this with details are still coming out. Yes. Being clarified. So what what's the big picture? What happened here? 
Okay. So as best as I can figure out, based on a good summary on, I think it was Daily Tech News Today, uh, which is a wonderful five-minute summary, by the way, that the DTNS guys do every day. I adore that summary. Mm. And based on the reading on Naked Security, and um, you found a link in The Guardian as well, as best as I can figure out, what we now know, so back in September... Zynga, who are a company who make a whole bunch of popular online thingies like Draw With Friends and a bunch of games. I believe Farmville is how they became famous. Isn't I think that? it's That's Word with, Words With Friends and Draw Something are the two big games, but there's OMG Pop, right? Right. So the two big games du jour are Words With Friends and the, the, the Draw one. But historically, I think Zynga sort of rose to fame they sort of created this whole model of becoming a giant big tech company based on Facebook games. That was right. They sort of pioneered that model. And they have lots of different products. Um, and they released a very, the kind of statement you get when the techies write something up, you hand it to Pure, and Pure are given the ability to write what they want instead of what's accurate. And so what came out was basically a whole bunch of fudge that just said, uh, some accounts were hacked. We're looking into it. Bye. Like, just no detail. Just, yes, yeah, some stuff happened. And that didn't make anyone in the security industry particularly happy. So the security press have been digging into this since September. And the first link you found was from October, right. which is when Naked Security got in touch with the hacking group who are claiming responsibility, Gnostic Players. And so what they said is that, yeah, yeah, we broke into Zynga and we stole a bunch of databases. And one of the databases we stole was for Words with Friends. And we got 218 million records from Words with Friends. And those records include names, email addresses, login IDs, hashed unsalted SHA1 passwords, password reset tokens, which I'm not 100% sure what they are, phone numbers, Facebook ID, and Zynga account ID. That seems like a little bit of stuff. Yeah, so my, my gut reaction looking at that list of stuff they got, um, you, one of the first things you pointed out to me when, when you analyzed it was that SHA-1 isn't best practice. Because um, SHA-256 is now what people recommend. Well, yeah, SHA-1 was, uh, what, 2005, I think, was when they decided that it was really, really you shouldn't be doing it? Shouldn't be using yeah. it? Well, okay, so you should 2010. By 2010, you yeah. really shouldn't have been using it. Right, but the chances are these are old databases. So with password security, you're you're always... It's when you're designing a system, you should not use a hash which you think will be insecure a decade from now. So in 2010, you shouldn't have built anything new with SHA-1, but it doesn't mean that you needed to necessarily go back in time to everything before then. The, it's, it sort of comes down to... The big thing here is they're salted. Uh, that, that's huge. Um, and, and just to refresh people's memory, if you if, if even if SHA one is is hacked, where which is crackable, which it is, if you salt on top of SHA one, then this SHA one database is not the same as a different the same stuff salted by somebody else with SHA one. So it's not like you can reverse it easily, right? Right, but the salt is actually per account. So the way a salt works, so mm. the way a salt works is that what's stored in the database is. A bunch of gobbledygook followed by a colon followed by another bunch of gobbledygook. The first bunch of gobbledygook is the hash, and the second bunch of gobbledygook is the salt. So if you and I were on the same, were on Words with Friends, and you and I both had the terrible password monkey, because you and I have different salts, we would 
the same password, even on the same website, would go to a different hash. Okay. So okay. cracking one doesn't crack them all. So if they weren't salted, you would basically, you would try all the common passwords, or if the same salt was shared, you could try all the common passwords, and then you would have everyone's password to use monkey. Oh, and if you tried right, open123, okay, yeah. you get everyone's password to use open123. But you can't do that here because they're, they're, they're salted and hashed, which is what you're supposed to do. Okay. So in this case, the danger, right? So where things stand at the moment is it would be feasible to go to EC2, Amazon's cloud thing, and pay a few thousand dollars and smash apart a specific salted hash you care about. So let's say, because they have the email addresses, right? So if they find an email address they're interested in, then they can target that person's password without too much resources because it's chat one. But what wouldn't be economically viable would be for an attacker to just attack the entire database and try get all the passwords and then see if anything of value falls out. Okay. Whereas if they weren't salted, that's exactly what you'd do. Okay, so because the, the passwords with the salt, so we're not as worried about that. But uh, yeah, that's not what's stressing me out. No, but names, email address, login ID, phone numbers, and Facebook ID—those things together—those bother worry you more. Those worry me more because one of the things that one of the things that is proving to be very valuable to bad guys is enough information to make a plausible-looking targeted phishing attack. And with a database like this, you could make a targeted phishing attack in an entirely automated way. Because you have enough information to use a mail merge, effectively, right, to build a believable attack on someone's Facebook account. Oh, okay. So it doesn't have to be targeted phishing. Right. So it's targeted in the sense that they have enough information that the recipient feels they've been targeted. But it's not someone spending time and effort because this database saves them the hassle. Oh, yeah. It's consistent information. Effort. Yeah, so okay. so effect so that's that's why it's so dangerous, and I get very worried with these large breaches that contain enough information to put together the kind of phishing attempt that will get will, will sneak by people's first glance. It won't look suspicious straight away because they'll have a lot of information and it will be correct. Yeah, and that's just enough to sneak by people's guard, just long enough to click the wrong things. Just and they'll probably go, people. oh shoot, yeah, exactly. So I always worry when I see that. Um, now, so as the story developed, so that was back in, so we've now reached October in our story. So in October, it was, the number was 218. And the thing we were worrying about was word with friends. Um, but what we now, what was also released at the same time, actually, in October, but didn't, didn't get nearly as much press as it should have, in my opinion, is that there was also a second, much smaller database stolen to a game that even then was discontinued called OMG Pop. It sounds fantastic. Um, and that only had 7 million records, but those were clear text passwords. Oh, jeez. So 7 million is a big number. If we hadn't just heard the number 218 million, right. 7 million would be a huge number, but it got lost in the 218 of Words with Friends. But to me, that 7 million is way worse, because if, if you're in that 7 million and you've reused that password anywhere else, you're in really big trouble because it's not it's it's not even badly hashed let alone badly hashed and salted it's just there yeah the 218 looks pretty good now right you're hoping you're only being fished yeah wow. and so today's edition 
is that actually Gnostic players got more than just the database they admitted to in October. They got a whole bunch more databases. So what they actually got was 172,860... No, 172 sorry. million. Yeah, I was wrong. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, there were more commas coming and I had already used <laughs> the wrong big words. Uh, so 172,869,660 unique accounts. Now, but what did they get of those accounts? That's why I don't know. How's see, that? That's where the, we don't have a great amount of detail because the Guardian, unfortunately, our source here is the Guardian article, and they're not really telling us an awful lot about exactly what's in this. But as best, they're not saying they're plain text. They are saying they're protected. So I think basically it's more hashed databases from more games. So it would seem that this word pop or OMG pop thing was one of their oldest games and therefore the most badly protected. And that words with friends is more typical and that the other breaches are in line with the with the words with friends database rather than so basically more databases like the words with friends databases because the Guardian does explicitly say uh, the password security involving two processes called salting and hashing means it would be time consuming and expensive for anyone who gets hold of the stolen data to uncover usable passwords. So, so this is more in the category of the 218 million, but it seems like it could these be a subset of the other one. Oh, no, it is. It's definitely, this is the same story. So the number is just growing, right? So wait, wait, we're wait. Discover- Hang on, 173 million is not bigger than 218 million. Oh. It's smaller. That's what's really confusing. Okay, now I, oh, booger, I thought I had it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Bart and I have been going back and forth for about 40 minutes trying to piece this together. So it yeah, more than 170 million. Yeah, so the 172, 869, 660, I got that exact number from uh, Have I Been Pwned? Because I thought that was... unique accounts. Ah, you, they're unique. So that hmm. means that some of the other numbers may contain duplicates. Okay. So we're not, we're not, the numbers aren't apples with oranges. Yeah, so what we don't know is, is this 173 a subset of the 218? And now this is verifying... I guess, how do we know about this 173 million? Uh, did we also get this from the hackers? Or did Zynga admit this one? Okay, so this one, these 173 million, they have, the actual data file has made its way to Have I Been Pwned. So this isn't someone saying what they have. This is what what the attackers okay. have as an evidence. Somehow, we do not have details about the how, but has been somehow given to have I been pwned? So what have I been pwned have is a definite certain 173 million unique gotcha. records. Okay. Okay. That, make, that makes sense. I know when I went to have I been pwned, I kept trying to get more detail. The Guardian article is like eight sentences. It has hardly any detail. So I was getting really yeah. confused by it. So I started following the links in it. And the link went to uh, have I been pwned where I found the exact number. And I thought that was fun. So then I found another link and it was offering to open the database for me. I was like, oh, wow, wait, no, no, I didn't want to do that. But that's what you're saying, right? Is they've actually got it now. They have the database. So uh, the previous reports were about, you know, the hacker says. So the, the Gnostic group were saying they. And here we have an actual database in the hands of Have I Been Pwned, who've done the analysis. And they say they have 173 million unique email addresses. Okay. Okay, I think we should stop there because that's the end of what we have as facts today, right? Yeah, so the big thing is if you're a user of any Zynga products, 
just be that extra little bit suspicious about stuff that comes in via email because you could be targeted for phishing. If you played OMG Pop and you know which password you used and you know you reused it somewhere else, you definitely, definitely, definitely need to change it. Now, Have I Been Pwned can help you here since they have these databases. If you use Have I Been Pwned, you can check if you're affected by this. Oh, okay. Good point. Um, you know, I, I told my family about this uh, earlier today and they said, well, we logged into that through Facebook. And right. So in that case, phishing is your danger because what you when you log in through Facebook, you're using a protocol called OAuth2, which means that the the site you're logging into never gets to see, let alone store your password. Okay. But what they have is your Facebook username. Okay. So if you log in via Facebook, you uh, your your pro your uh, password has probably not been hacked, but you're Definitely. still in the phishing pile. Yes, exactly. Definitely not because the way OAuth two works. It's designed that you can log in somewhere without them ever seeing. It's like using PayPal to pay for something, right? The site that okay. uses PayPal never sees your credit card. When you log in with Facebook, the site you're logging into never sees your password. So they can't mess it up because they never had it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So in the show notes, I'm writing, if you've used any Zynga games for anything, be super alert for phishing. And I'm going to write after that for the rest of your life. To, yeah. These are although, always forever, right? Yes, although the information goes stale, right? Because you change email addresses, you change phone numbers. So the information does slowly go off. Okay. Sort of like 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 a you know, like a pickle rather than like an egg. But <laughs> it does go off. <laughs> like a pickle rather than an egg. This is what you get, uh, ladies and gentlemen, when you ask Bart to jump on with no preparation. <laughs> Yes, and I, I may have had uh, sauerkraut with apples and pickle for dinner. Ah, okay. So that's why that came up. It was bloody delicious too, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I appreciate you jumping on. I know this was uh, uh, a, l a little tough, but I think this was big enough that we should, uh, it would be very stale. It would be like a very old pickle after the holidays. Yes. Also, this says to me having to worry about it in January. So All right. for me. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Bart. Okay, and future me will wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, no, past me, oh, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Bye. Well, I'm sure glad Bart jumped in there to help us out. And I've got one other thing before we kick into the regular security bits. Steve Sheridan brought our attention to a 45-minute talk by Evan Kerstick of Apple at the Black Hat Security Conference. It isn't often that we get to hear from Apple in the wild, so this is a unique opportunity to hear from their head of security, engineering, and architecture, and there's a link to a YouTube video that Steve sent to us. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Barbu Schatz. Uh, in theory, you're listening to this on December 22nd, 2019, no matter when we're recording, right, Bart? Right, because I'm having terrible deja vu. It feels like we only just did this. <laughs> so this is the second half of a Security Bits that we started a week ago, and uh, we're going to do some slightly more evergreen information because it was not light your hair on fire. Is that right? Correct. And it comes with the caveat that if something horrific has happened in the last seven days, we are blissfully unaware. We have no <laughs> idea... Uh, so there may be terribly important patches you should be applying right now this second to protect your very digital existence, and we, we, we know nothing. 
And we're Hopefully just happy not, drinking eggnog. We're, we're good to go. <laughs> well, I think I'll be tucking into my... Uh, we have a tradition that we always buy a bottle of port once a year. Because we don't drink uh-huh. a lot of port. But for Christmas, I always buy a bottle of port. And we've got a lovely ruby port this year. So I'm sure I'm enjoying that as we as, as you listen to this. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. So you promised us two security mediums. I did indeed. So the first security medium I promised you was the overhyped VPN weakness story. So... These researchers genuinely did find something interesting, but it is not the end of VPNs as we know it. The way this was reported is that all OSs have a bug in their kernel that makes all VPNs insecure. That is just... Oh, that doesn't sound that, good. It doesn't sound good, and it's thankfully factually nonsense. Okay. Now, the researchers did do some cool research, and they have found a leak of some information that I would have assumed, and not just me, that we assumed, couldn't be leaked. But it's not, it doesn't pose an actual danger to you. Hmm. It's, you know, so it's interesting, but it's, the researchers overhyped it in their own introduction, but they sort of stayed mostly to what I would call factually correct. They just took an optimistic view of the facts. Then it went to editorial staff who were not computer experts, and then it went to headline writers. And in that game of telephone, all semblance of reality was lost. So that's sort of how we got there. Anyway, what did they discover? So if an attacker is on the same network as a victim machine and in a man-in-the-middle position on that same network, so basically what we're describing is the classic coffee shop Wi-Fi attack. Okay. So they don't just need to be a man in the middle anywhere. They have to be a man in the middle right next to you, sharing the same layer two network, if we're going to get really, really picky about it. Okay, so so you and I are at Starbucks. You're sipping your latte. You're happily, blissfully on your VPN. And I'm I'm trying to do a man in the middle attack on on you. Yes. Okay. Or we're both in the same hotel and I'm in the room next door. But it can't be you're at, you know, some other network between us on the internet. No, no, no. You have to be right here sharing my network. Okay. If you're in that position, then you can send intentionally misformed TCP packets at my computer. And based on how my computer answers, you can figure out if my computer has an internal private IP address configured. Hmm. Now, you have to send me a few packets for every possible private IP address. And then based on that probing, you may get a positive ping back saying, aha, this machine has a supposedly internal private IP address of 10.8.4.4 or whatever. And you shouldn't really be able to do that, we would have thought. But it turns out that because of the way TCP IP stacks work, you can detect a difference in how the bogus packet is responded to. Now, for every VPN works the same way. It doesn't matter whether it's open VPN, some sort of propriety standard, uh, IPsec, uh, WireGuard is this, the, you know, the, the fancy pants new one that's about to be added to the Linux kernel. It doesn't matter what VPN protocol you use. It doesn't matter who your provider is. A virtual private network by its very name means that your computer is given an IP address in a private network that is security teleported into your computer. You will always have a private IP address when you have a VPN connection because literally your traffic is routed through that private IP address. That's how VPNs work. 
So everyone who has a VPN has one of these private IP addresses internally configured in their computer. Is that something we can see as users? If you go poking deeply enough, if you go poking deeply enough, yes. If you do an IP config, sorry, an IF config forward slash all on a Linuxy machine or a netstat minus A on a Windowsy machine, you will see that you have your wireless card and maybe a Ethernet card, and then you'll find these virtual network devices. And while you're connected to your mm-hmm. VPN, one of them will have a, a private IP address. Okay. So not buried that far. No, but you're not going to see it. Like, if you go to system preferences, you probably won't see it. Okay. All right. Um, so at that stage, if, if that private IP address exists, it doesn't mean you're definitely using a VPN. But if you're using a VPN, you definitely have a private IP address. And a lot of providers have default ranges. So the default for OpenVPN is 10.8.anything.anything. So if I discover that your machine has a 10.8.something.something private IP address, I can say with probability that you're running OpenVPN. Okay. But that's it. That's all I can say. Now, for you to discover that, you need to, in theory... If I, you know, if you're unlucky and I am lucky, you need to send me a probe for every possible private IP address. So, how many private IP addresses are there? Well, one nine two dot one six eight dot anything dot anything. So that's sixty five thousand five hundred thirty six. One seven two dot sixteen to one seven two dot thirty one dot two four five dot two five five. It's also Wait, private. What are, what are these? What are these ranges you're giving us? IP addresses that are private. These are the only ones that are private, is these, these sets you're telling us right now? Yes, that is by, oh, okay. by the definition of IP, these are the private IP addresses. Everything oh, else okay. is routable. These are the private IP addresses. So 192.168.anything.anything, that anything, that's 65,000. 172.16, up as far as 172.31, that's another million and a bit. And then the biggest one of all, 10.anything.anything.anything, that's 16,777,216 more. So... There is over 18 million IP addresses that, that are nearly 18 million IP addresses that in theory need to be tested to make sure you're not running a VPN. So That's they a lot to, of probing. They have to go through those in order to find out if you're... Well, to find out that you're not, they have to go through them all. They could get lucky and the, they could probe 10.8.0.1 and hit you in first time if that happens to be your private IP address. Right, if you're you're scanning but, for I, someone, I'm trying to figure out what good this does them. They're very little. To, they're trying to find people who are using a VPN or not using a VPN. Using a VPN. Okay. The intention they, being, if they can figure out that you're using a VPN, maybe they can do some more shenanigans. So wouldn't it be a lot easier to look for the people who aren't using a VPN? Well, no, because that that's really hard. No, because then you're not breaking into their secrets. Right. the The, the intention is to attack VPNs. Because pe- if people use VPN, VPNs to protect. To well, no, you're, you're, doing, you're possibly doing something of high value. You may be VPNing back to a corporation, which has lots of juicy okay. secrets that you might be able to sell. Okay. You may be, you know, you, you may be, you may work in accounts. Okay. Maybe okay. really valuable. I got you. So the so, intention here is to try break VPNs. Can a man in the middle position be leveraged to break into VPNs? Was what the security researchers were hoping to do. Okay. So they succeeded with this probing approach to detect private IP addresses, which they shouldn't be able to do, but they can. 
But that doesn't in any way attack the encryption. And it doesn't in any way tell them what you're doing on the VPN. Literally, the only thing they know at this point in the attack is this person probably is using a VPN. And whatever it is they're doing, they definitely have a virtual IP address that is whatever they found. And it, well, and they probably know which uh, VPN provider you're using. Possibly. Right. So if you're using one of the well-known defaults, then they can say with a fair amount of certainty. But lots of people will use like OpenVPN is is open source. So there's lots of people using OpenVPN on different address ranges. Oh, okay. So just because you're not in the OpenVPN default doesn't mean it's not OpenVPN. But if you are in the OpenVPN default, you're probably OpenVPN. Right. So it's not a lot of information here. So they try to go further. They try to leverage this little tiny piece of information because that's how a lot of hacking works, right? Find a tiny piece of information and see if you can expand that into a proper foothold. Mm -hmm. So they tried and they were able to get a little bit further. But now the probing is even more difficult. So they cannot tell what connections are running through the VPN, but they can test the VPN to see if a connection to a an a destination IP and port that they're interested in, they can test if you're talking to it through the VPN. So they look to see, they can figure out if they're looking specifically for connecting to bankofamerica.com? Yeah. So they would have to specifically know what to probe for. So basically, if they are interested in whether or not you were looking at a specific IP address on a specific port, then hmm. they can send you another couple of million spoofed packets to figure out if you have a connection to that IP address and port. And to do that, they have to basically fake out every possible unprivileged port because the TCP connection has four four points. There's the source IP address, which they know because they've discovered that in step one, and the source port, which is randomly chosen usually from all of the possible unprivileged ports, and that's uh, 65,000 of them, if memory serves, to a destination IP and a destination port. So they are probing the destination IP and port, so they know that. They found your IP address, so they know that. So the only thing they're missing then is the priv- the unprivileged port, but that's 65,000 things to check. Wow. So to figure out if you're connected to one IP on one port, they have to send you... 65,000 groups of packets. This isn't a single packet probe. They need to send a bunch of packets to each port to see if you have a connection. So this would be a ton of work if you started with a very specific high-value target, uh, a Congress critter, and you were trying to go directly in, or or CEO of Ford, and you were trying to get into to see what they are. Sorry, better yet, CFO of Ford. Yeah, definitely. And then, and then at that point, it would be really, really, really hard. Yeah. And then all you would know is that they have a secure connection to something. Now, with a little bit more jiggery pokery, because they still can't break the encryption, and at no point in this attack can they break the encryption. Okay. But they can start injecting packets into this connection they now know exists. Now, those packets will always be garbage because they don't know the encryption key, so all they can do is talk garbage. But... Talking garbage at the TCP IP stack is enough to make it emit reset packets. And Mm. based on the size of the reset packet, you can make an educated guess at the protocol. 
Oh, wow. And that's it. That is the sum total of what they were able to achieve with all this work. So then, You're like probably you said, really using a VPN. It is interesting, right? I mean, this is good computer science, but it is not all VPNs have been destroyed. It really, really, really isn't. I think this is so far from the end of VPNs. Yeah. Okay. I'm what they sure may I also explain that in a nutshell if somebody asked me, so what about this story? <laughs> Other than that, nah, don't worry, don't worry about it, it's fine. I think that's the best solution you can come up with. Don't worry about it, it's fine. Um Security Now did a really good job explaining all the nitty-gritty detail. Um as I say, VPN getting denied. Good episode, seven four four. Okay. But that is that is the bottom line. Yeah. Security medium two then is iOS thirteen and iPhones eleven location tracking conundrum. And I'm happy to say, explained. This was a bit of a mystery. And if we'd had to record last weekend, I would have had to say, there's something funny and we don't understand it. And that would have made me cranky and would have made you cranky. But another week has passed and now we know. (laughs) So well-known security researcher Brian Krebs, who I cite very regularly, um, noticed the little icon indicating access to location services was coming on on his phone at times he wasn't expecting when he had all of his toggle switches set to off. And so he's like, well, I've told the OS not to use location and the OS is using location. I think I found a bug. This seems like, you know, and that's what he posted. Symptoms. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he posted. That was interpreted as Apple are spying on everyone. That's not what he said, but hey, more click that way. Um, And he kept probing, and Apple's first initial response was obviously written by an idiot who basically went, no, 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 this is expected behavior, and explained nothing. Now, that didn't make anyone any happier and made everyone's tinfoil hat constrict their blood flow a little bit more. (laughs) So Apple then had a second attempt at explaining things in which they actually explained things. So, this was only affecting iPhones 11. So, the key to all of this is what makes the iPhones 11 different to every previous iPhone. I know what it is. That, uh, is it UMA, UWA? The ultra-wideband, the U1 chip, as, as Apple have branded their implementation. It's ultra-wideband Bluetooth, which is a really cool piece of new tech that is right now being underutilized, so we haven't realized how powerful it is, but... When but it's Apple... already doing stuff. Like right now, if, I, if I'm sitting at my desk and I go to AirDrop, it'll say, do you want to AirDrop to your 16-inch MacBook Pro? Because I'm right next to it. Or if, I, if I'm standing next to Steve, it'll say, oh, do you want to give it to Steve? It's not just next to, it's actually directional. So it's even cooler than that. Ooh, so right. yeah, you can when I'm sitting at my desk, when I'm sitting at my desk in work, I have my desktop on my right and my laptop on my left. And I have done this with my iPhone. I, have brought, I wanted to share a document I just scanned. And when I turned left, the Mac became prominent as the first thing in the share menu. And when I turned right, the laptop became most prominent. I have not noticed that. I will so not it's actually be paying attention because I'm going to be testing that right now. So if you're in a room, the idea is if you're in a conference with lots of people, it will know who you're pointing at. So it's directional. And the really big rumor here is that when Apple released their tile-like tracking system, this directionality is going to be an absolute game changer because it will literally be able to tell you your keys are five meters in that exact direction. You add some AOR and you can literally put an arrow over the keys. So this will be super cool. 
So I'm now, not seeing different ones, by the way. I, I'm seeing all three devices, and it's not changing as I move my phone around. It, it may depend on what the signal being emitted on the other side, too. But if the ultra-wideband is doing its ultra-wideband,ing it will be directionally aware. Actually, yeah, let's see. It's, it's not instantaneous. Yeah, I don't know. There, there is an effect. I can't quite see what it is. Oh, shoot, I just sent a picture of leaves to my Mac. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're lovely. Either so anyway. way, this is a new wireless technology, and wireless spectrum is regulated because it can interfere with things. And this ultra-wide band, as its name suggests, is fairly, it's using a fairly wide chunk of spectrum. And there are parts of the world where that chunk of spectrum is protected. So in order for ultra-wide band to be legal, devices using it must check that they are not in a place where that part of the spectrum is not permitted for use. Oh. So anytime your iPhone tries to use ultra-wide band, it has to ask location services, is it okay that I do this? Oh. Now, it doesn't tell anyone what your location is. It never leaves the device. But the driver for the ultra-wideband has to ask location services, where am I? And so your phone tells another part of your phone where it is. And that means the icon will light up because someone has asked location services a question. So the little icon will come up. And that's actually a really good sign that Apple have implemented their operating system properly. If anyone, even a driver on the local phone, asks location services for a location, the icon comes up. Oh, interesting. What, what kind of locations are forbidden? I mean, like the Pentagon, that kind of thing? Or China? What is their... Not I China? don't know. I don't know is the answer. It may be entire countries or it may be places. I don't know. Okay. But it's part of the licensing of that chunk of spectrum. Huh. So there is nothing being there's nothing leaving your phone. So this is not a this is not a privacy issue. And it is now absolutely clear that this isn't nefarious in any way. This is actually the phone behaving entirely as it should. So Apple's first statement was factually correct. <laughs> Just but tone useless. deaf. Tone deaf. Utterly toned out. So what Apple have said is, okay, this is confusing to people. Therefore, in a future version of iOS, there will be a toggle that will completely disable location tracking, which means that when you do that, you won't have ultra-wideband until you turn it back on, which is fine. Like, if you fully disable location services, that means you're also disabling UWB. Okay. But you'll still be able to turn off other location services and keep... I mean, yeah, I mean, okay. all those toggles you have now, so you can say, dear Twitter, you're never, ever getting my location, but ultra wideband is fine. Yeah, you can keep doing all that stuff. It's just you'll have an extra toggle now, and that extra toggle will effectively disable UWB. So this is actually really cool. It's exceptionally cool, and there's nothing nefarious, and there's no risk to your privacy. And even leaving it on when the toggle appears will have no risk to your privacy. So I would say just leave it on, because this ultra wideband stuff is going to be really useful to us in the future. So, so all right, in all, you, sa- you said right now it's doing these things that we were discussing. What uh, what else is it going to do that's going to be nifty? Well, you can imagine that there will be future versions of the various Apple beacons and stuff that when you're in museums and stuff, it can be extra cool. But what's much more likely to be cool very soon is there are extremely strong rumors that Apple are working on a competitor to tile. Oh, right, right. Uh, and everyone keeps expecting that to be released any day now, and it hasn't quite yet, but all of the pieces are in place. And the UW, the ultra-wideband chip, is a really big part of that. Right, 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 right. 
So I think that's where it's going to come to life. And that could, that could literally happen any day now. Not in time for Christmas. No, not this Christmas anyway. Um, so I also then have some other notable news that I held over from last week that is timeless. So I thought it was worth bringing up. So there's a bunch of little stories that are all sort of related. Basically, the whole encryption debate has not gone away. And it's just gotten a big kick. The beehive, someone's kicked the beehive and the someone would be the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee who hauled the tech companies in for grilling over end-to-end encryption. And they made some threats, like basically do what we want or we will impose our will, said Lindsey Graham. Graham? 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 He's, I'm not Graham. sure how he pronounces it. Graham, okay. Uh, basically, Apple said, no, this is really important that we protect people. Uh, Facebook said, no, this is really important that we protect people. And the US Department of Defense went, no, you're trying to break the encryption we need. Oh, good. So, really... Because that screws them up, too. It really does. So I, I love the headline Mac Observer put in it. We need that encryption you want to break, says Defense Department. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. Mean so that doesn't mean it's going to help, but no, but it's good, right, to see that if the entire government were singing off the basically the police state hymn sheet, then China is sort of inevitable. Mm -hmm. But that's not happening. There are sensible people in the room making the other argument within the government as well as within the tech sector, and Apple and Facebook are both correct to be united on this, and that's good. So. This is a relief that this is a strong debate still. Yeah. Another interesting I, development. I am curious to see what's going to happen with uh, Australia and the UK. So, uh, the whole Five Eyes thing. Yeah. I mean, this, this story is going to run and run. Um, but I mean, it is, when does that go into effect that they're saying they have to be allowed into the encryption? Well, the, the, the Australian law, I think, is technically in effect. So it just... There hasn't been any enforcement orders because the Australian law had different levels of order. Uh, and the, the worst of them was that, in theory, a court could compel a company to put in technical countermeasures. That just hasn't happened. Oh, okay. Okay. And if I mean, they ever try to pull the trigger on that provision, then I imagine you'll have tech companies just leave the country. So Right, that that's what I was thinking. Apple would have to. But then you, you got to look at each country on its own. Which, which one would they leave? Right. It, it's very difficult because they're, they're, Apple are also facing a conundrum in Russia where a law has just been passed that every phone sold in Russia has to preload uh, Russian apps. Yeah. And Apple are like, that's equivalent of forcing us to jailbreak. We're not going to do that. And the parliament has said, well, we've passed the law and it comes into effect, I think it's in 10 weeks time. So that'll be interesting. Actually, no, yeah. sorry, it was June or July. It was the summer. Okay. But yeah, I didn't think it was again, there's a showdown on the way. Oh, there's lots of these showdowns on the way. Yeah. So it'd be very interesting. Mm. It's interesting, even China doesn't force pre-install of software. They just firewall off the entire country. So it's right. different approaches. <laughs> different levels of bad. Different, yeah, and if the Russians get away with it, then quite obviously all the totalitarian states are going to just go, oh, great, that playbook works. Yoik. Because <laughs> intellectual property. When has China ever cared about intellectual property? Right, right. Uh, and another development that is intriguing, may come to nothing, but it's intriguing, Twitter have announced that they are funding an open source initiative to create 
a decentralized standard for social media. So the idea would be that you would have a federation of independent social medias that could all interact with each other. And Twitter promises that when this is designed, they will join. So I heard uh, Tom Merritt talking about this on Daily Tech News Show, and um, it, it reminds me of Mastodon. That's the idea. Yeah, But Mastodon Same is a, kind of a really difficult to use, decentral- so decentralized that it's not centralized at all. Right, which is why, in theory, Twitter could just become all that's needed for Mastodon not to not to be such a mess is for someone to take the lead and to I mean that it doesn't have to be difficult it just is because it's four geeks by geeks yeah so arguably Twitter could just take all that work and run with it but they're setting up their own because that just seems better the other argument I've seen made is why don't you just open up your current protocols and let others use them <laughs> why invent a new protocol well, they're, um, they're trying to go at this a lot more thoughtfully than that I think I hope so. So if this comes, this could be really interesting or this could fizzle into a big pile of nothing burger, but it's a very interesting approach. So I'm curious rather than optimistic. Yeah. Um, Tom reported that it would be years before we actually saw anything on this. So don't, don't hold your breath. Yeah, because basically what they're doing is they're setting up, they're, they're, they're fixing to make a plan. Yeah. But well, nonetheless. start. It takes way longer if you don't start. Right. I mean, how do I how do I chop a giant big pile of wood? Get started. <laughs> uh, in Europe, then the right to be forgotten has, I think, taken a turn for the perverse. So, you and I spoke a lot about the right to be forgotten when it was initially came into being through a court case in the European Court of Justice. And what I said to you was, this will be really interesting as test cases come to court and the, what this means becomes clear and my hope was that sanity would be applied well a convicted murderer has won the right to have search results about his conviction for murder removed from google oh no are you serious i am serious so the court rules that his right to privacy trumps our right to know that he's a murderer and i'd think that's nuts so sex offenders have in the United States have to uh, register. As oh, sex this wouldn't offenders. affect that, right? So, because that would be a legal requirement. Because that's that's a legal requirement that the information be made public. That would be completely that's that that would be completely covered, right? That's the statutory reporting. So, isn't it a legal requirement that murder be recorded somewhere in the public record? Nope. There is no murderers. There is no murderers register. There's a sex offenders register. But there's no murderers register. Right, but the convictions are a matter of public record. No, right. The convictions aren't being removed from the public record. It's search results are being removed. So if you actually oh, go, so the record can be there, but if you search for it, you won't find it. Correct. Oh. And that is one of the points the judges made in their ruling that they are saying that we are telling the search engines to remove the listing. We are not removing the actual records. So the judges understood that difference, but I don't think that's appropriate. I think the public interest, the point was they were supposed to balance public interest with privacy rights. That's the whole point of this right to be forgotten. So politicians will be treated differently to random Joe Soap and criminals should be treated differently to law-abiding citizens. And I think they have misbalanced the rights of the individual against the public good. Hmm. So I, I think they got it wrong. Yeah. Uh, 
in an interesting story, again, reflecting the fact that it's not only Apple facing difficult decisions, um, Singapore passed a law against fake news that allows the government to declare something fake news and then it becomes a legal requirement that it be corrected. Facebook were forced to correct a user's post by the Singapore government for the first time. Huh. Which basically meant they put a notice on the page saying, this post contains incorrect information according to the Singaporean government. Okay. So, it's again, it's it's one of these laws coming into effect for the first time, and we can argue whether Singapore government is being totalitarian-ish, don't Mm -hmm. really care. It's interesting that, again, you have Facebook being forced because you have to obey the law. Any country you do business in, you either don't do business in it or you obey the law. And whenever I hear people say, well, Apple should just say no to the Chinese government, Mm -hmm. don't get to do that. Just like Huawei can't come into America and just say no to Congress. Right. You can leave. Yeah, but you can't be here and not ignore the local laws. And like no American would find it acceptable for a Chinese company in America not to obey American law. So why would any American assume it's okay for Apple to do the same in China? It makes no America. sense to me. That's why. I know. It's just I wish people would see the dissonance. I'm asking too much. Anyway, um, Apple's whole privacy thing in Safari has had an interesting effect. Um. Advertisers have had our advertising agencies have had to reduce the price of ads being shown to uh, to Safari users because they're not as valuable because you can't track them. So Apple can't get as much for the ads they're saying. No, 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 no. People selling ads cannot sell ads seen by by Safari users for as much money. Oh, interesting. So because we are private, we are less valuable. That hmm. proves that this is working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Which is brilliant. And finally, with fi- my VR goggles while we talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Just one final story. It's 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 very much borderline whether this counts as security at all, but I guess it's a certain kind of security. But there's a lot of FUD doing the right. Five G is the whole big you know buzzword du jour, right? Five G, five G, five G. Answer to life, the universe, and everything. And also pseudoscientific mumbo-jumbo. If you hear someone telling you that 5G will give you cancer, they are talking absolute codswallop because the physics means it can't. Oh, really? If you don't... Yeah. It is non-ionizing radiation. It is not capable of mucking with your DNA. It does not have the physical mechanism for doing so. It is like expecting that... Throwing a big bean at a charging rhinoceros will cave in its skull. It doesn't work. The physics doesn't add up. But don't take my word for it. Um, Tidbits have a lovely article. Here's why wireless networks pose no known health risk. I know when they first started talking about 5G, that was one of the things. Yeah. Basically, Einstein won a Nobel Prize for figuring out the photoelectric effect. It doesn't matter how much intensity you do at a wavelength that isn't capable of knocking an electron out of its orbit. It's not the intensity, it's the wavelength. Those 5G waves can not disrupt your DNA. There is no physical mechanism for them to do so. The electrons are safe. Your DNA will not be mutated. You will not get cancer from it. Which is good to know. That is good to know, right? Okay. 
So, some palate cleansing. Uh, first off, I suggested listening. Uh, this one's a bit more obvious why I would suggest it. Uh, 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy did an episode on the Holrith Punch Card. Oh, I didn't know they had a name. Yeah, it's, I think it's a good name. I think it's actually an eponym, but someone called Holrith, or Holrith, I'm not quite sure the pronunciation actually, seems like they should have discovered punch cards. <laughs> Sorry, it took me a minute. I was reading as Hollerith and I didn't hear it. <laughs> yeah. Nominative determinism, I believe is the phrase. If your surname is Baker and you go into the baking industry, that's nominative determinism. And I the uh, name Baker came from people who were bakers. It does, but if you if it works the other way for you, then it's nominative then it's nominative determinism, right? So one of my okay. favorite examples, um one of the science reporters on BBC Radio for years with a speciality on the oceans. Uh, had a surname of Scales. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Anyway, I love nominative determinism. Um, and then a true palate cleanser to prove that statistics are um, interesting. Uh, so, XKCD presents a new Is It Christmas service. It is 99.73% accurate. It always says no. <laughs> I actually tested the math because I read ahead. That is correct. Yeah. 99.73% of the time it is not Christmas. <laughs> there we go. Some fun with statistics to end the day. I like it. I like it. Well, it looks like uh, that's going to wind up the year for us, Bart. We're uh, Let's hope we stay uh, safe until next year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to talk to you for a whole year. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the listeners have a peaceful and enjoyable holiday season, whether you're in the Southern Hemisphere and it's all sunny and shiny, or in the Northern Hemisphere where some mulled wine is definitely appealing. You know, fun with family and friends, eat good food, drink good drinks, have a good time, and whatever it is you believe in, I hope that is fun for you too. And give some prezzies. Apparently that's nice too. And stay patched so you stay secure. Exactly, and that includes your presents. Make sure your presents get their software updates. Well, I will add to Bart's comments and wish you a very safe and happy holiday season with lots of good cheer, family fun, nifty geek toys, and joy. And remember, tell your friends. If if they're sad because they're podcasts or, you know, skipping episodes because they're on vacation or if they're, uh, maybe they're running reruns. I, I'm not a big fan of reruns. Be sure to tell them that the NoSillaCast will have live content because of our listener contributions coming into the show. So there will be another show. In fact, there will be a live show on December 29th, I think that is. Um, the following Sunday, we will be at CES up in January, but I'll warn you about that next, next week. So that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send your dumb questions, comments, suggestions, and listener contributions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at Podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with Podfeet.com. You want to become a patron of Podfeet Podcast? Go to Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community? Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to Podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the very friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.